Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 22 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to have as my special guest, Yale University astrophysicist Gregory Lachlan, whose research focuses on numerical simulations and modeling of data that run the gamut from star formation to extrasolar planets. Lachlan received his PhD in astronomy and astrophysics from the University of California at Santa Cruz and joined the faculty at Yale in 2016. Along with Fred Adams, Lachlan is co-author of the acclaimed 1999 nonfiction book, The Five Ages of the Universe, Inside the Physics of Eternity, published by Simon & Schuster. And he is a co-founder of Metaculus, a reputation-based online prediction solicitation and aggregation engine. Today we'll be talking about both the cosmos's distant past and its extremely distant future. Lachlan joins us from New Haven, Connecticut. Greg, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hey, Bruce. Thanks for having me. First off, you and colleagues now think that with our current understanding of physics, that the long-term fate of the Earth, the solar system, the galaxy, and the universe is an area that can be meaningfully explored. What do you mean by that, meaningfully? Well, meaningfully, um, you know, there's always, basically as old as the human, you know, sort of experience, there's been ideas about what will happen in the extremely distant future, you know, how the world will end. And, you know, over the last century or so, we've developed a good enough understanding of physics, including cosmology and thermodynamics, quantum mechanics, planetary dynamics, to really be able to project the clock of the universe to timescales that are far, far longer than the amount of time that the Earth has, has existed, and get sort of a best guess picture of what the universe will look like in the future as understood by our current understanding of physical laws. Your current theory, current theory is that the universe, uh, universe is some 13.8 billion years old, uh, some 3.8 billion years older than when your book was first published. Your book divides the cosmos's timeline into five eras, the primordial, the stelliferous, the degenerate, the black hole, and the dark. And we're going to get to all of those in a few moments. But first you write that nature is defined by four fundamental forces. So let's uh, briefly go through them. I'll just preview them for you. Gravity, which is the weakest. The electromagnetic force, which is uh, very much stronger than gravity. The strong nuclear force, which is what binds subatomic particles and atoms. And the weak nuclear force, which uh, by some accounts is the most mysterious. So gravity. Let's start with gravity. Yeah, well, gravity is really the the player on the, the very largest scales in the universe. And that's the, it's interesting because gravity is the intrinsically the weakest of all the forces. If you have two molecules that are placed very close together, they do feel a gravitational attraction, but it's incredibly, incredibly small. If you took two sugar cubes and placed them out <clears throat> in space about a centimeter apart, it would take the sugar cubes about an hour to come together under the action of gravity. But gravity has this kind of persistent quality in that it's long range and it doesn't give up. And so the more mass you sort of gather up in a larger and larger volume, the larger 
uh, the gravitational force becomes. And so for something the size of the Earth, uh, anybody who's jumped off a diving board knows that, that gravity is, is quite, quite significant. Um, and on the very largest scales, the scales that dictate the entire cosmic horizon, gravity is really the most important force. And then as we kind of go through the hierarchy of forces, the, the strong nuclear force is actually the strongest force close range. But interestingly, it drops off very, very quickly. So the strong nuclear force is, is, is what binds atoms together on the inside. And it's really sort of the glue that gives matter its existence in some sense. The weak nuclear force, as you uh, mentioned, is, is still maybe the most mysterious. We understand some aspects of it very, very well. It's responsible for certain types of radioactive decay. And it may be the way in which the dark matter particles that we know suffuse our universe, it may be the way that those dark matter particles interact with each other. And then maybe the most important force for everyday life, sort of a, a close competitor with, with gravity, is the electromagnetic force. Uh, electromagnetic force is what mag makes magne magnets attract. It's what makes a Tesla run on autopilot. And it's responsible for chemistry um, and sort of basically everything that makes up the stuff of everyday life. It mediates the interactions between electrons, protons, and basically allows things to sort of life to exist in the way that we're used to. And, but in terms of gravity, uh, gravity still, we understand it uh, to some extent, but we still don't know what drives it, do we uh, or not? Well, we, we understand very well how gravity works, and we understand that, that, that mass basically curves space, and the curvature of space is manifested as, as gravity. That's been understood since Einstein's work more than a century ago. But where gravity comes from in a deep sense and how gravity is tied into the other fundamental forces of nature that's a part of physical law that still still eludes physicists. And that's because the conditions at which gravity begins to become competitive on a short range with other forces require enormous densities of material, enormous densities, and that kind of comes with enormous temperatures at the same time. And those conditions are absolutely impossible to reach in the present day universe. Uh, you can reach them inside a black hole, but the information is cut off from uh, what we can know. And the conditions where gravity is on par with the other forces, that's something that happened in the very, very tiniest slivers of time after the Big Bang. And it's sort of the horizon of what we currently understand. The putative detection of the Higgs boson by the researchers at CERN, which is significant of uh, a, a particle's mass, does that that has really nothing to do with gravity as we understand it, the deep understanding of gravity? I, I think that the deep understanding of gravity um, goes beyond the, the 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 Higgs, which which imbues the particles with masses. So we understand sort of why the particles have inertial masses, but we don't understand in a deep sense what causes gravity to exist at all. Okay, it's could be definitely some... not a hopeless situation because okay. we understand very, very well how gravity works on the large scales. And we can use that theory to understand real minutiae about how the universe works. We can understand how black holes collide and exactly what they do when they collide, which is amazing kind of predictive power of gravity. 
the listener may not appreciate this, but most of the universe, as we know it, is made up of these extraordinarily large voids between uh, clusters and superclusters of galaxies. How does gravity work on the very largest scales, where in which you have extraordinarily large voids in these superclusters and clusters of galaxies? I mean, what I'm what I'm getting at is, does gravity have in does gra- uh, do superclusters which are separated by extremely great distances have a gravitational influence on each other? Uh, they do, but there's something that's sort of another interesting ingredient of our universe that we've realized is important over the past two decades is this idea of dark energy. Right. We're gonna, so it we're, turns out we're, we're going to get to that yeah, later, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. So, so, so absolutely, the superclusters are influ- influencing each other uh, gravitationally. And when we wrote our book, uh, the, the sort of the idea that, that, that was current at that time was that superclusters would attract other superclusters and that you would get effectively clusters of superclusters, kind of turtles all the way up, if, if you will. And that idea, that idea has been scotched by the discovery of, of, of dark energy, which sort of puts a stop to structure formation at the very largest scales in our universe. In terms of the strong nuclear force, I mean, the, the fact that on a, a, in a subatomic level, an atomic level, the, the substructures of atoms are so tightly bound uh, is, made, is what made it so difficult to split the atom, right? Yeah, that's right. The, the atom, proton or neutron, is made of quarks. The quarks feel the strong nuclear force. And that really, really tightly binds them together. And so it requires very large energies, effectively, in a particle accelerator like the one at at Fermilab or the one at CERN to get protons or other other small particles moving at the kind of speeds that are so close to the speed of light that when collisions occur, you actually can kind of spill out the guts and see the quarks that the protons and neutrons are made up of. And how would you uh, define a quark? Well, quark is a subatomic particle. Uh, it's a bundle of mass energy that has um, fractional electric charge and it has something called a, a, a color charge. That's not to say that if you looked at a quark, it would be a particular color as seen by the redness of our eyes, but rather it's a um, quantum number that gives a particular type of quark a particular property. The, the, the zoo of subatomic particles is pretty extensive and not mysterious any longer, but a little bit difficult to comprehend at the scale that we live at. And the, uh, the weak nuclear force, which is the most mysterious, uh, could you give us a definition of that again? Well, the, the weak nuclear force is a force that mediates some kinds of radioactive decay, decays involving neutrinos and uh, electrons. And it also probably is the only force that the dark matter particles feel, not the dark energy, but the actual dark matter particles that are probably streaming through all of our bodies every single moment. Those particles are immune to um, electromagnetic force and immune to the strong nuclear force, and they they effectively feel that 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 weak 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 nuclear force. And so, probably one of the the great discoveries that will occur in the next ten to twenty years is an identification of exactly what that particle is, and exactly how it makes use of the weak nuclear force. So during yeah. the Stelliferous era, uh, our current era. 
Uh, matter is arranged in the form of stars, galaxy, galaxy clusters, as I mentioned, and, and most energy is produced in stars. But you write that there is a constant struggle between gravity and entropy. So what is the time frame for the Stelliferous Era? And please explain the struggle between gravity and entropy, <laughs> entropy and give us a little bit of a ther- uh, parenthetical definition of entropy. Yeah, so the, you know, the Stelliferous Era is something that we kind of came up with to define the time during the history of the universe and the future history of the universe when, when stars are able to shine through the normal mechanism of, of nuclear fusion, the time when we'll have stars that are fusing hydrogen and helium. Um, so we're in the midst of the Stelliferous Era now. The, the sun will last another six billion years or so before it exhausts its uh, hydrogen and turns into a red giant and kind of goes through a bunch of kind of high energy fireworks at the end of its life before becoming a white dwarf. Stars that are significantly less massive than the sun, stars like the nearest star, Proxima Centauri to the sun, um, burn their hydrogen much, much more slowly. They're, They're much more conservative in the way that they run their affairs. And so Proxima Centauri, the the nearest star to our solar system, will last uh, almost 10 trillion years before it runs out of nuclear fuel, even though it has far less fuel to start out with, 10 times less fuel to start out with. It'll burn all of it, and it will burn it at a very slow rate. Um, And so over time, fewer and fewer new stars will form as the supply of hydrogen gets exhausted in the galaxy. And star formation will slowly come to an end. And then the low-mass stars that formed in the last waves of star formation, those will slowly uh, 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 die away and become white dwarfs themselves. And so that'll bring the Stelliferous era to, the, to an end. And that's something that'll happen you know, somewhere between 100 trillion and a quadrillion years from now. And uh, that typically that 100 t- trillion number has been uh, perceived as being quote-unquote, the end of the universe. But it's not the end, and we're going to get to that later. We know now that yeah, 100 trillion years... Yeah, it's the end of stars it's, it's end of stars. We know it. But, but, back to, but back to the question, so what is the difference, what is the constant struggle between gravity and entropy? Uh, you mentioned that in your book, in, in Our Own Sun, there's a struggle between gravity and entropy. Uh, yeah, can you explain so, what you mean by entropy and, and the gravitational sure, struggle? Sure, Yeah, so sure. Ent- ent- entropy... Um, is effectively a measure of disorder and entropy is associated with heat. So if you have um, some material that is where lots of particles are moving randomly, there's a lot of disorder in that aggregation and the particles are kind of hard to pin down. So if you have a hot gas that exerts strong pressure, it's hard to keep it confined. And so what the sun is effectively doing is it has a interior, which is extremely hot, border 10 million degrees Kelvin, and is exerting very, very high pressure, has a very, very high entropy. And at the same time, you have the gravitational force of all that material trying to crush the star to the sun to a smaller volume. And so you can kind of think of the equilibrium that the sun's in, which it's been in for the last four and a half billion years. You can think of that as sort of a a balance between entropy or pressure that's pushing out and trying to expand the sun to a larger size and gravity, which is trying to cause the sun to collapse and become a much smaller object. And so those two competing tendencies 
are in balance and the balance is maintained by the fact that you know the sun is leaking heat out all the time that's why we're, we're here we're able to run um, the planet on solar energy ultimately uh, but that heat is is being constantly resupplied by nuclear fusion of hydrogen into helium and so as long as there's heat, hydrogen um, at the center of the sun then the sun will be able to uh, maintain this balance between pressure and gravity and shine in a more or less constant way. Uh, you write that in the absence of these two competing forces, gravity would soon crush the sun into a black hole only a few kilometers across. Is that really the case? Sure. If you, if you were to um, somehow eliminate the sun's ability to maintain pressure in its interior, now you, you couldn't do that, sort of a thought experiment. But if you, if you could do that, you could remove the pressure from the inside of the sun, then the sun's gravitational attraction would sort of overwhelm the structure of the sun and it would collapse into a black hole in a span of about an hour or so. So uh, since the, uh, the book came out in, uh, I believe it was 99, we know that the uh, universe is quote-unquote flat, which means that it's ever-expanding. It's not going to, uh, to collapse back onto itself and nor is it uh, what what you what we call open. Can you can you define what we mean by op- what you mean by open an open universe? Yeah. So the, the the good thing about the sort of recent discoveries in cosmology is that space on the largest scales more or less behaves as you would expect it to. Um, on the largest scales, what we mean by flat space is that geometry, the sort of high school geometry that that, that you learn works. If you draw a triangle um, in a very, very large volume of space, the angles inside add up to 180 degrees, which uh, is kind of comforting. Um, before before the discoveries of, of WMAP, it was thought that the whole universe, that, that space could be curved in the same sense that the surface of the earth is curved. The surface of the earth looks flat if you just walk down the street, but you know that if you walk for 24,000 miles in one direction, you'll come back to where you started. When we wrote the book, there was still sort of a possibility that the universe might um, have that structure and that the universe itself, curvature of space might allow you to, if you travel far enough in one direction, to come back to where you started. So we now know that that's not the case. We know that the universe on the largest scales has a flat spatial geometry and that its expansion, the fact that space itself is generating more space, that expansion, as far as we can tell, will continue into as far as we can see into the future. The expansion is isotropic and it's like kind of, you know, kind of equivalent to raisins rising in a cake if I understand correctly, right? Well, it's, it's a little bit like if you, you're in an enormous cake where you have no sense of the edge of the cake. So uh, it would take a lot of money to buy all those raisins. But <laughs> if you had an enormous cake with an enormous number of raisins and the cake w- was a yeast dough and it was expanding, then it would seem if you were at some particular location in the space, it looked like, all the raisins are moving away from you. And the sort of, if the cake is large enough, then each raisin has that same perspective. Each raisin thinks that all the raisins are moving away from, from it. And so when cosmologists talk about 
space being isotropic, what, what they mean is that the expansion is going at the same rate in all directions and that the universe is large enough so that it has no discernible edge, so to speak. And everybody thinks that, from their point of view, that they're at the center of the expansion. <laughs> Which is certainly not the case, as we know. So um, you write that if the universe were neither non-expanding nor a finite entity, our own Earth would be so full of thermal radiation and stellar photons from across the breadth of space-time that we would experience temperatures as hot as that of a star's surface. Yeah, so that's, that's an old idea called Olber's Paradox. It was first sort of thought of, I think, in the 1700s or maybe the early 1800s. And the, the idea is, is if space is truly infinite and the number of stars is truly infinite and space has sort of a static configuration, then no matter what direction you look at, eventually you'll come to the surface of the star. And so if the universe was set up that way with an infinite number of stars and an infinite amount of space and had been in existence for an infinite amount of time, then um, the sky would not be dark at night, but rather wouldn't be as bright as the surface of the star. And that's obviously um, not true. So there's something wrong with that picture. And the paradox has been resolved both through the realization that the universe has a finite age. And so there hasn't been enough time for light that's further uh, has had to travel more than 13.7 billion years. There hasn't been enough time for such light to reach us. And so the paradox is resolved in that way. And the paradox is also resolved separately through the realization that space itself is expanding. So if space is expanding, the light that's traveling through space is expanding as well. And as it expands, it loses energy, shifts out of the visible range. And the paradox gets resolved by basically redshifting all of that starlight to infinity. And so the, the paradox really is, uh, why is the, uh... Why is our sky dark at night? Uh, that's that's how that, yeah. that's how the original yeah. fr- uh, question was framed. Exactly. And uh, what you're saying is, I, if I understand you correctly, is that the uh, it's because the the stars, the distant stars and galaxies, are expanding basically away from us at the same rate that we are expanding. And if it were a static universe, then their light would eventually read, reach us and overwhelm us. We would live in, in, a, in a very bright uh, cosmos. Yeah, so if it was a static and infinite cosmos filled with stars, then, yeah, the sky would be, would be bright. But the cosmos is not static, and the part that we can see is, is not infinite because of the finite age of the universe. You, as you mentioned uh, earlier, <clears throat> it's commonly known that in another six billion years the sun will enter it's in game as an expanding red giant star. It'll stop fusing hydrogen into helium and evolve uh, off the so-called stellar main sequence. So depending on whose model you, you use, Earth's biota will be disrupted as our planet becomes hotter and hotter. Uh, perhaps within a, a 500 to a billion years from now, uh, this will interfere greatly with photosynthesis on Earth and uh, cause the loss of much of our water into space through photo dissociation. Is this the, still the correct paradigm? Yeah, I think that's cer- cer- certainly the, the sun's future evolution is, is very well understood. How stars work, and in particular how stars like the sun 
evolved through their life phases is an area that, that, that really has been pinned down pretty well. So that part of the story is, is basically exactly the same as it was in 1999. How Earth will respond to the brightening sun, um, whether life on Earth will start having trouble <clears throat> in 500 million years or 2.5 billion years, that depends a lot on the very long-term geologic feedback processes that exist on Earth and also depends on how the atmosphere will respond to the increase in, in, in sunlight. So we have this example right next door, the planet Venus, which probably when the solar system started out, Venus probably had a oceans on its surface in a much lower mass atmosphere. And as the sun has gotten somewhat brighter over the past four and a half billion years, the sun is now about 30% brighter than it was when it was uh, first entering the fusion phase. Um, that 30% increase in brightness has probably been responsible for driving Venus to its current state. Venus right now has lost the vast majority of its water um, through photolysis of the water molecules and the loss of hydrogen into space. And uh, the carbon dioxide, which had been sequestered in the rock probably early on, is now all up in the atmosphere. And so Venus's atmosphere is about 90 times thicker than the Earth, about 90 times more massive, and it's, it's mostly made of carbon dioxide. <clears throat> There's a very, very strong greenhouse effect in effect on Venus. And so the surface temperature on Venus is extremely hot. So unfortunately, that's probably um, what the Earth will evolve to look like over time scale of probably billions of years. Um, exactly when that will happen um, depends on a lot of detailed geophysical feedback factors that aren't fully understood yet. So I think there's still a pretty wide margin for error, something like 500 million years to a couple billion years is, is probably still the best guess. But you write in the book uh, that uh, our planet could potentially avoid this fate, not by astroengineering, not by simply making a pilgrimage to another Earth-like uh, planet, uh, but uh, by nature itself and the fact that our Earth has a slight chance in the next two billion years of being totally dislodged from the solar system by a passing red dwarf star. You write that the chances are about one in a 100,000. Do you still stand by these numbers that there actually is maybe a one in a hundred thousand chance that we could be totally dislodged from our sure. solar system. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, the dislodging that we were writing about there is what would happen if um, another star happens to pass very close to the sun, sort of at a distance similar to the earth's distance from the sun. And that <clears throat> we know the density of stars in space. We know how, how fast they move. And so the statistics of whether one might come through that close during the next few billion years are, are, are quite easy to pin down. So those odds of order one in 100,000 are, are, are pretty low, but they're, they're not non-zero. So let's uh, suppose, you know, miraculously there was some life still left on Earth or, you know, maybe even sentient life in two billion years. And we were dislodged from the solar system and we no longer have a sun. Um, so does that automatically mean mean it's curtains for the inhabitants <laughs> to be thrown out no, of the interstellar space? No, curtains immediately. In fact, life life on Earth would actually last a lot longer if Earth were uh, ejected from the solar system. And the reason is because the geothermal heating is 
<clears throat> pretty significant. And so communities like the oil field bacteria would last for a very, very long time um, before the earth froze through completely, probably of order tens of billions of years, if the earth was removed from the solar system. Now, it wouldn't be pleasant on the surface. The temperature would drop down to a few degrees above absolute zero in pretty short order. Um, and so you would have an absolutely frozen surface and that, that kind of wave of freezing would move down through uh, the, the, the layers of the earth over time. But um, the deep biosphere would take a long, long time to be affected. But let's just say that, that the, there was a human life that somehow was able to, to uh, hang on through the red giant, part of the red giant phase and, and, and our planet was thrown out into dislodged in the interstellar space. How long could humans survive? Yeah, so so we would pass the orbit of Jupiter uh, probably in a year or so. Good um, gosh. So it would take a little more than a year to pass the orbit of Jupiter. Wow. And then within a decade, um, we'd be further out than than um, Neptune and, and and Pluto. And so the you know the, the the surface temperature would 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 drop very very low in a pretty 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 short order. So that that's not a pleasant thing to have happen luckily it certainly is not going to happen in the sort of foreseeable future we know where all the stars are and we know that at least in the solar neighborhood and we know that none of them are headed on a trajectory toward uh the 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 sun and so uh, we're safe for at least uh, probably 10 to 50 million years would be the earliest that something like that could happen in a in a hundred trillion years you write that the at the end of the Stelliferous era, the last generation of stars will have been wrung from depleted interstellar clouds and the evolution of the few remaining red dwarfs will be slowly drifting to a finish. And then we enter the gener degenerate era. And I guess some people would argue that we're already in the degenerate era. <laughs> I couldn't resist. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, hold my tongue on that one. Um, but, <laughs> but the uh, degenerate, <laughs> the, the degenerate era is defined as the uh, era of brown dwarfs, white dwarfs, neutron stars, and black holes. And uh, yeah. protons will begin to decay, and the sole survivors will be black holes. Well, the, the proton um, that makes up you know, atoms... Uh, is seems to be extremely stable. So uh, ordinary atoms like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, the quote-unquote stuff of life, uh, doesn't, doesn't undergo radioactive decay as far as we can tell. But sort of deep ideas in physics indicate that if you wait long enough, the proton should be unstable. And the time scale that you'll probably need to wait is something like 10 to the 35 years. That's a one with 35 zeros following it years. So really vast amount of time. Um, but over those kinds of time scales, basically all matter is effectively radioactive and will start to decay. And so the, the sun, for instance, will turn into a white dwarf made mostly of carbon. And over time, those carbon atoms will start to uh, decay because the protons that make up them and the neutrons that make up them are, are are decaying, and so they'll the white dwarf will slowly evaporate. The same thing will happen to the Earth. If the Earth manages to survive the Sun's red giant phase, um, the Earth will eventually get knocked out into space by a passing star, 
and this proton decay would eventually sort of get rid of the, the, the mass that makes up the Earth. And so proton decay is really something that changes the inventory of the universe in a profound way. It removes the things that have been formed during the Stelliferous era, things like the Earth, things like the suns, things like white dwarfs, brown dwarfs, and it leaves only a thin soup of electrons, neutrinos, and, and, and black holes. Then during the, the black hole era, uh, the only matter that will remain is in the form of black holes. <laughs> Hence its name. Uh, but Hence its name, yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, the black holes themselves slowly evaporate away the matter contained in them by the quantum mechanical process of Hawking radiation, you guys write. And by the end of this era, only extremely low energy photons, electrons, positrons, and neutrinos will remain, I think, as you just touched on. What do you mean by the term no-hair conjecture when it comes to black holes? So the no-hair conjecture is something that, that um, John Archibald Wheeler talked about back in the, in the 60s. And the idea is, is that if you've seen one black hole, you've effectively seen them all. Yeah, the only thing that delineates a, a black hole is its mass, uh, its, its spin, how fast it's spinning, and then it's electric charge, if it happens to have accumulated electric charge. And so if you have two black holes with the same mass, then they're identical. They have no personality. They have nothing to distinguish them from each other. It's a little bit like electrons or protons in that regard. If you have one electron, it's exactly like every other electron. And so the no-hair theorem is just saying that black holes uh, kind of follow that same principle, and they're imbued with charge, mass, and spin, but don't have any other delineating properties. If someone had never heard the term black hole, how would you, you know, give, give them a parenthetical definition? Well, a nice way to think about a black hole is sort of the classical idea of something that's so dense and has so much mass packed into such a small area that even something that's traveling at the speed of light can't get off of it. So here on Earth, if you're traveling... Um, faster than 11 kilometers per second um, and you're not prone to the air resistance, you can just leave. You've got enough velocity to escape the Earth's gravitational uh, pull. And if you were to sort of bring mass and add it to the Earth, you have like keep crashing spaceships on the Earth and add mass to the Earth, then the Earth's gravity would get stronger and stronger. Eventually, if you could keep the, the, the radius of the Earth the same and just keep adding mass to it, eventually the escape velocity would be so large that even light couldn't escape. And so something that, um, whose gravity is, is overwhelming, even, even light trying to get out, is effectively a black hole. Um, using the theory of general relativity, a black hole is effectively a mass that has cut itself off uh, from our own universe through an event horizon. So new material can enter the black hole, but once you've crossed that event horizon, you, you can't come back out. It's causally disconnected from our realm of space. But paradoxically, you know, there is a, a phenomenon known as Hawking radiation, yeah. uh, named for the late uh, Stephen Hawking. Can you explain that? Sure, yeah. So that's a remarkable sort of about face from what I just said. It turns out that... Um, space is sort of bristling with this constant creation of particles and antiparticles which flicker into existence for a brief moment 
and then annihilate back into nothing. It's kind of like this constant little credit card debts followed by repayments happening so often <laughs> that, that you don't really notice that it's there. But in, in the vicinity of a black hole, um, what, what can happen is, is that a virtual pair creation event like this can occur. And one member of the pair manages to escape because it happens to be outside, just outside the event horizon. And then the other member of the particle um, is added to the black hole. And so that process manifests itself macroscopically as slow evaporation of a black hole. And so black holes are actually not completely black. They're black in the thermodynamic sense of a thermal emitter. And so a black hole is actually radiating a light of wavelength of order the event horizon size. And so if the sun were to turn into a black hole, its black hole would be about three kilometers um, across. And the light that it would be emitting would be light with a wavelength of order, three kilometers. So that's extremely low frequency, sort of ultra radio waves would be coming off of it. It would be very difficult to detect because the emission would be at a very low level. But nonetheless, as the sun slowly lost, the sun's black hole slowly lost uh, uh, energy through that emission, it would gradually become less and less massive. And it would get smaller in physical size, and the wavelength would, of the light would get smaller as well. The electromagnetic radiation would get smaller as well. And eventually, uh, the black holes get so small and so low mass through this process of Hawking evaporation that they become quite bright. And in their last second, they sort of explode with an energy that's similar to that of a, of a, of a nuclear device. So black holes um, look black because the energy that they're emitting is for the kinds of black holes that the universe is producing right now that are macroscopic in size. The, the energy that they're emitting is extremely pitiful. And it's only over time scales of literally 10 to sort of like the 80, 90, 100 years. That's a 10 with 80 zeros or a one with 80 zeros after it years um, that, that this, this process actually begins to really eat away at the black holes themselves. So, uh, so in other words, although we think of the universe as, uh, as very old, it's not nearly, it's not even a fraction of the way through its, uh, its ultimate life, if you can call it that. Back to the black holes, you mentioned that, you know, if our sun were to turn into a black hole, it would be something on the order of less than two miles across the black hole. Yeah. Uh, which is, you know, extraordinary, because if I'm not incorrect, uh, you know, you could put three, uh, 300 Jupiters inside our sun. That's right, yeah. And yeah, uh, and and the uh, our Earth is only a fraction of the size of Jupiter, so that gives you some perspective, right? Yeah, yeah. Jupiter is actually about one one thousandth of the Sun's mass, and Earth is about one three hundred nineteenth of Jupiter's mass. So you can fit something like three hundred thirty-three thousand Earth worth Earth's worth of mass to get one Sun's worth of mass, and so cramming all that mouthful into a single object that's a few kilometers across, a few miles across is it's a tall order. So well, I mean, that's basically what what you know I used to run in high school. Uh, <laughs> after after school, I'd run you know a couple of miles, and that would be like yeah, the distance of, yeah, a, so of our Sun's black hole. black hole. Pretty pretty yeah. incredible. Okay, so um, could life even exist in the black hole era? 
you note that the that carbon based life cannot exist in in the, this future era because in this future epoch all protons and all the carbon nuclei would have decayed into smaller particles. But uh, would life take on non conventional forms, and how so? Well, well, it's possible. Um, you know, something that that has sort of developed in our understanding um, in the last. 20 years is that the theory of computation is increasingly indicating that, you know, the, the, the brain is a type of massively parallel analog computer. And we're starting to see artificial intelligence. It's not there yet, but nonetheless, you can have a conversation with a computer now that would have been utterly impossible 20 years ago. And so, you know, what constitutes life uh, is sort of a tricky question. What constitutes intelligence? What constitutes consciousness? I think those ideas are gaining quite a bit of impetus from you know the advances that are being made in um, computation. And so I think the question is not so much will we be sitting around with car stereos in the degenerate era and the dark era, but rather will information processing be possible over those extremely long periods of time? And I think the jury is very much still out on that. Um, there's this question of whether there's sort of enough energy to do computation in a universe that is expanding um, with accelerating expansion. There's sort of an idea that there might be a kind of quantum minimum temperature uh, in space. And if that's true, then you won't be able to run a heat engine. And if you can't run a heat engine, then you can't do an irreversible computation. That is, you can't sort of build a computer along the lines that we normally think of a computer and actually have it do anything. And so, you know, out of all the the sort of ideas that we talk about in the book, I think that where we sounded most naive and silliest, if you will, is the the sort of like the sort of lack of lack of big picture foresight regarding computation being a really interesting thing that could happen in the extremely distant future and whether that will be possible. What what do you mean when you're saying a black hole information processing? So you're saying the temperatures are so low in the distant future in the galaxy in the uh, in the universe that uh, that black holes will essentially. No longer being. No, I think I think it's it's more. I think I think it's more in the extremely distant future. It's can you build logic gates out of photons, electrons, neutrinos? Um, can you somehow have information processing occurring using those very very low energy ingredients that would require extremely long times for for switching to occur? So you um, so uh, so you mean in a in a theoretical astrophysics point of view, or do you mean somebody who's around? I mean, there's, no, there, there's life I as we I know mean it. A theoretical it, astrophysical point of view, because we're just not going to be around. We're not the, going to be the, around, and life as we know it. The of our bodies isn't going to be there. There's no there there. And right. So it, you have to kind of step back to a much more abstract <laughs> idea of computation and life. And those are kind of interesting thought experiments that really... I don't think have been answered in a satisfactory way. But in a general sense, you you mean it, are the temperatures going to be so low that any sort of basic activity, the, uh, astrophysical activity, is going to take place? And yeah, what you're yeah, saying so basically is no that that that's not going to be able to not going to be possible. It, 
it's it's not clear it 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 really is 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 not fully clear and to to get a better handle on that will require getting a better understanding of what the dark energy actually is and why it is that the expansion of the universe is accelerating and whether that expansion the acceleration of the expansion will continue for extraordinarily deep cosmic time those are all huge what ifs that we don't have the answer to and so it's almost at a kind of a, a juncture where until we get the basic properties of the dark energy sorted out, which is something that could easily happen in the next 10 years, next 50 years, even if in our lifetimes, um, until we get those basic questions answered, I think it's premature to talk about the, the, the possibility for life and computation, you know, out at time scales that where black holes are decaying and where there are no black holes left. Right. Okay. So then the, the last era of the universe is the dark era, which only has very diffuse matter remaining with activity in the universe curtailed dramatically uh, with very low energy levels, as you were just mentioning, and very large time squ- scales. And the universe will eventually turn into a void of nothingness, you, you guys write. Uh, have your views on that changed at all? I think our views on that are pretty much all, are all still the same. The, 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 dark era chapter was a little bit tricky to write because it's so far out that our ability to predict, even with kind of like the arrogance that we had in our youth, um, was running a little bit thin. And so um, I think it's really true that once the, once the um, black holes evaporate, uh, you're left very, very thin soup. And whether you can cook something interesting up with that soup, I think really remains to be seen. So when will the black holes disappear? It's a, a 10 with how many zeros? <laughs> uh, about 100. Okay. So it depends on how massive the black holes can get. The bigger mass black hole you can put together, the longer it takes to evaporate. But so in, terms, so in terms of our own temporal sense, our own sense of time here on Earth, how would how would how would you uh, relate that? You know, it, it's it's just too far out. I think that something that that I didn't really appreciate, you know, twenty years ago, is just how how long those time scales are, and how removed from any of our kind of analogy or current understanding um, they they are. Uh, a a 10 or one followed by a hundred zeros, that number of years is just, it's, it's effectively incomprehensible. It's larger than the number of protons in the entire visible universe, much larger. And so it's, I think it's almost, it's almost, it's so far out. It's almost like eternity to us. Yeah. It's effectively eternity. And so, you know, you can turn to mathematical ideas of infinity and maybe that's where the best prospect for getting, you know, a, a grasp on those vast oceans of time okay. lies. But I don't, you know, I, I, I don't have a, a ready analogy to kind of like make it simple. Okay. So what is classical heat death? Uh, is that our cosmos's ultimate end game? Uh, that's, that's, so well, well classical, classical heat death is the idea that, that the temperature becomes so, so low and energy differences become so small that it's impossible to run a heat engine of some type. And if it's po- impossible to run a heat engine, it's also impossible to do irreversible 
computation. So thermodynamics kind of grinds things to a halt. Mm-hmm. A wrench is thrown in that by the dark energy, which we don't yet have a full handle on. But it's um, possible that the dark energy uh, basically imbues space with a minimum temperature, an incredibly low temperature of something like 10 to the minus 27 Kelvin or something like that. And so that on time scales, you know, like black hole era, like time scales, everything is sort of uniform in temperature. And so it's impossible to run a heat engine. And so the universe approaches something that's very much like the classical idea of, 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 of heat death. So I, th- I think it's, it is indeed quite possible that, that, something like that will um, characterize the universe in the extremely distant future. But again, we're kind of making speculations that, that rely on our understanding of physics being completely correct and complete. And we know for sure that neither of those are true. But, but again, the classical heat death, a parenthetical definition is what? Well, that's just when you can't run a heat engine because the temperatures have gotten so low and the temperature differences have gotten so small. And a heat engine you define as, as what? A heat engine is 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 something that that um, turns heat into work. Okay. So um, something where, for instance, you heat up a gas, the gas expands, the gas pushes pushes a piston, and the piston drives your car. That's a heat engine. Okay. We're, and, and again, we're uh, for the listener. We're not talking about uh, in a realistic. Uh, uh, we're talking about natural astrophysics. Physics. Yeah, we're not, yeah. We're not yeah, talking yeah. about uh, anybody sort of like uh, in, the, in the far sense. future trying to harness these low energies. Okay, so finally, what about the uh, the fact that our current universe seems to be fine-tuned for life? Uh, there have been numerous books that deal with this idea, and you write that planets are the petri dishes on which life, life can arise, that, that stars produce heavy elements and the building blocks of life. And without galaxies, the elements essential for planets and life forms would be spread out over the all over the universe, if not for the galaxies. So uh, it, you note that hydrogen itself is an essential ingredient for life, and that nuclear fusion and stars produce the elements necessary for life. So are you an adherent to the idea that we live in a cosmos fine-tuned for life, simply because nature makes multiverses that run the gamut and Eventually, it hits the astrobiological jackpot with the cosmos that is fine-tuned for life as we know it. Mm, yeah, I don't know. That get, sounds kind of like a stretch. I, I think Fred might have written that part. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I think, you know, the, it, it is true that things work out pretty well. Um, the, the, the fact that we have long-lived stars, the fact that, you know, liquid water has these remarkable properties that that list just goes on and on and on so it's it's interesting right it's it's interesting that that the physical constants have the values that they do and it's remarkable that we're here and um uh, it's remarkable i guess that's that's as far as is is you know with my perspective i can i can i can really take it you know, you hear about the multiverse. I think the idea that I, I definitely would not say I'm, a, I'm an adherent of because I have no idea. But the idea that this might be a computer simulation um, is is sort of attractive. But that that idea is that's a whole that's, other you know, podcast, and I've actually done a story yeah. on that. I'm I'm going to do a yeah. podcast on that. That in other words, the the universe that that we live in is a creation of a 
extraordinarily advanced yeah, civilization. We might, be, we might be part of a of, of a simulation, right? And, right? and then you, of course, have the turtles all the way down problem of the simulation being something in a simulation, right? Because we're soon going to be running simulations that are pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. And you know, and then now you use that so much stuff. You use that term "turtles all the way down," and that there actually was kind of a, a psychedelic country music song. I've forgotten the guy's name, the singer's name, but "Turtles All the Way Down." If the listener wants to Google that, it's a great it's a great song. But you use the term "turtles all the way down." So tell uh, tell us what you mean by that. You said "turtles well, all the way I, up" and "turtles all the way I, down." I don't remember that. It was the creation myth of some culture. I, I really don't remember how it goes, but there was something like a snake encircled the earth, which was on the back of the turtle, and then the wise man was asked, "Like, what's the turtle standing on?" And the wise man was like, "It's turtles all the way down." So that's that's sort of a it's sort of a cliche, but it's kind that, of become cosmological shorthand for 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 sort of like a, a, a I can't pronounce that word the Russian dolls that are nested within each other right yeah, you know, it's yeah sort yeah. of this idea of a recursive a recursive repetition or a fractal repetition where something on one scale is mimicked another scale down. And so, yeah, the turtles all the way down is sort of like a snarky short shorthand for that. I would, I would, I would say. And so, you would just uh, for people who adhere to the idea that uh, we could be in a multiverse and the other multiverses may not be as suited for life as this one, you kind of adhere. You kind of think, well, that's a that's a turtle on the way down. Yeah, that's a turtles yeah, on the yeah, way down, could, all the way down. Be, idea. Like, okay, I wouldn't put money on that. But, okay, um, it okay. Could, could be. But we, but uh, you do agree that we. That do live in an extraordinary universe where the laws of nature and the the setup. Oh, I definitely definitely agree with that. With the definitely. with planets as byproducts of stars and and stars yeah. as byproducts of galaxies and dwarf galaxies yeah. and yeah, and it's the, amazing that it all works. So it well. all works so well. Anyway, um, so what drew you to uh, astronomy? Uh, well, the you know when I was a kid, well. I guess I'd have to say that, that when I was a kid, I was very interested in UFOs. I um, had a paper route, and even though it was the 1970s, um, there was a, a lady on the paper route who ran sort of a book drive for, um, it was like the ladies' auxiliary for for some fraternal organization, I think. This was in the 70s. They had a book sale where they had books that were donated and so when I was on my paper route, um, the books were all in her garage. I'd spend a lot of time looking through them. And I was very attracted to the books about um, UFOs, and Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, and, and, and things like that. And um, the books that I was reading in the 70s were all written in the early 50s. And so they had this kind of paranoid watch the skies aspect to them. It wasn't the kind of like fuzzy alien abduction 1970s style ufos but rather these kind of cold silvery cold war discs uh -huh. that you know were always silvery and remote and and so i really badly wanted to see one for myself so i i, I did spend a lot of time outside um watching the skies hoping to see a 1950s style ufo in the 1970s um so i think that's kind of what 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 drew me to Astronomy, astronomy was kind of like, you know, the the respectable end of that, the, the end that you could get um, real real answers to interesting questions. What crosses your own mind when you see a swath of of dark sky? You know, there's there's I'm, I'm sure on the podcast that that 
you have astronomers trying to um, outdo one another with poetic vastness of the <laughs> firmament and the interstellar gulfs and the are we alone and you know and a lot of times like the worst way to start an essay they're trying to get into graduate school at least in my book is to say like ever since comma so it's like ever since man has looked up at the star I, I don't know you know it's like the you can't you can't see the stars too well with the naked eye and and so it's it's dark at night. You know, it's it's beautiful to look up at the Milky Way. That's that's cool, but it doesn't imbue me with the huge cosmic gulfs of feeling. I, I think that one thing that is remarkable is that that we understand what's going on. We get so little information. Um, you know, if you look up to the night sky, you can you know you can see the stars, but it's not easy to see the stars. You can't see other galaxies. You can't see any detail on other planets. Uh, and yet we we know all this stuff, and it's a testament to the power of the scientific method that's gotten us to the realizations that we have. So, uh, Greg, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? Uh, I'm not on social media. Um, the <laughs> do you have yeah, a way? So, <laughs> if they want to comment nope. or they they want to reach out to you, uh, just look up your email. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, they, yeah, they, they could, they could, they could look up my email. Um, the one, one thing that I am um, running or helping to run, actually, this um, website about predictions called Metaculus, and so that's right. Yeah. I'm active on there, and and I think that you know, if, if things that I've been talking about sound interesting, um, you might find a, you know, kind of an interest there on that site. That's like metaculus uh, dot com. If I'm yeah, yeah. metaculus. M e t a c u l u s. Right. Yeah, I think okay. so. M e t a c u l u s. I I was never um, you know the the spelling bee champions, but I think that's I think that's right. If you t- type that into Google, it'll it'll figure it out. So as always, uh, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Uh, Gregory Laughlin, uh, let's hope that our cosmos gives up more secrets soon. Thanks, uh, yeah, let's hope so. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Okay, thanks, Bruce. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.